You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. Hi, everyone. This is Station F, the podcast, and I'm your host, Roxanne Varza. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a topic that I'm absolutely passionate about, startup communities and what makes startup communities thrive. And who better than Brad Feld and Ian Hathaway? Um, They have just released a new book together called The Startup Community Way. I'm assuming many of you have probably already heard of Brad. Um, He's an early stage investor and entrepreneur, famous for not being based in Silicon Valley, but in Boulder. And he's also best known for being the founder of the Foundry Group, co-founder of Techstars, and uh, having invested in a lot of incredible companies as well. Ian Hathaway is also part of the managing team at Techstars, uh, an economist from the University of Chicago, started his career at the WTO and has also worked for the Fed. Um, He recently moved back to California from London. Ian and Brad, it's great to have you both with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Double thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, for our listeners who maybe are less familiar with the book, uh, what is it even about and who is it for? I guess it's not necessarily about building companies. So give us a little bit of the backstory. Ian, all yours. Thanks, Brad. Uh, well, this book is about um, collaboration, fundamentally. Um, it's about building communities of support and knowledge sharing, Um around entrepreneurs so that they can better succeed. Um, Our central message is that by placing entrepreneurs at the center of everything, um, applying a give first approach, which means looking for ways to help people big and small without the immediate expectation of something in return, uh, leads to more meaningful collaboration, trusting relationships, and most importantly, improved odds that entrepreneurs will succeed, which is what we all really care about. Super. And since Ian just answered this question, Brad, I'm interested in how did the conversation for this book even start? Where did the the thought for it come from? So I wrote a book in 2012 called Startup Communities. And in 2012, the phrase startup communities didn't exist. So the book uh, generated that phrase and the concept around it and the premise that you could build startup communities anywhere in the world, and which evolved into the assertion that you should be building startup communities everywhere in the world. And this is, you know, when the book came out in 2012, this was emergent from the financial crisis, you know, that w- the global society was starting to come out of in 2010, 2011. Uh, in 2017, uh, Ian and I, who had become friends and had done a few things around startup communities together, started talking about the idea of doing a sequel uh, both of us in various forms in our lives were getting asked the question, uh, you know, we've been at the startup community thing for four or five years. What should we do next? And we initially started having a conversation and wrote a first draft of the book trying to address that, you know, a sequel, not a second edition, very clearly building on uh, what I had come up with with startup communities in 2012. And after about a year, 2018, uh, we'd probably written 30 or 40,000 words. Uh, We decided that what we had written sucked and we were very unhappy with it. And it wasn't that the ideas that we were starting to bounce around were bad. It wasn't that there weren't, you know, sections of what we had written uh, were certainly useful and ended up making it into the 
the final uh, the final book. But we we really just didn't feel like we were hitting on anything that landed in a meaningful way. And one day, uh, Ian reached out to me. We ended up talking, and he says, "I've come up with a way to think about it, the lens we want to use for this book. Uh, I think we should talk about." Uh, startup communities as complex adaptive systems. And we both knew a fair amount about complexity theory at different levels. I've been curious and interested in it since the 1980s when it first became emergent out of the Santa Fe Institute. And kind of once he said it, I'm like, yep, that's totally a way to think about it. So we both went deep on uh, complex systems in general. And we end up shortening the phrase in the book to complex systems because complex adaptive systems just too ponderous to, to say over and over again. And uh, then ended up building an entire view of how startup communities work, uh, get started, grow, develop, evolve, based around the concept of how complex systems work. And in doing that uh, exercise, we also then came up with a bunch of new ideas around startup communities, both things that were uh, additive and generative and things that were holding startup communities back or common flaws and mistakes that we continue to see, again, against this backdrop of complex systems. Super. And I'm I'm really intrigued by kind of the thought process and the fact that you guys had essentially started working on something that you decided to scrap. What was, what was in that edition, in the, the one that you said sucked? The, the shitty one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, don't re- I, don't, I don't remember. I purged it from my computer and my brain. <laughs> Ian, Ian, Ian might remember. Yeah, I remember a bit about that. So, I mean, so basically one of the things that um, was, you know, part of the initial game plan was, okay, look, entrepreneurial ecos. So back in 2012, when, when Brad pub- wrote and published Startup Communities, you know, we had, it was just the beginning of the cycle where entrepreneurship has really become a dominant global phenomenon. And it has really entered the, you know, the forefront of, um, you know, governments, policymakers, corporations, universities, and another range of actors. And that was one of the things that we observed early on is that, look, there's a lot more people participating in this space, throwing a lot more funding at these initiatives. Um, and these are or tend to be organizations that are not, you know, themselves entrepreneurs or working with entrepreneurs in a consistent basis. We should probably, you know, make this, you know, a couple of things. So let's, let's add, make it a little more researchy, add some more frameworks to it, bring in some data points about, you know, progress that's been made um, since the first book was written, tell more stories from around the world. And so it kind of was an evolution in that regard. But, you know, as Brad mentioned, that where we landed on uh, using the framework of complex adaptive systems to explain the behavior of startup communities and entrepreneurial ecosystems and to give insights into how to engage with them, what we realized is that we needed to go much deeper. There was this massive disconnect. Um, So it wasn't just a matter of providing standard frameworks and saying, see, look, this is a real thing. Uh, Feel free to apply, you know, standard data points uh, to measure progress um, in your entrepreneurial ecosystem to show that things are working. Um, You have this entrepreneurs and the community builders on one hand who really did see these as a bottom-up phenomenon uh, with inherent uncertainty, experimentation, learning, adaptation as the norm, and these new players, these hierarchical organizations who favor 
careful planning, execution, and control. And these are at odds with one another. And so what we realized is that we actually had to provide a framework that explains this behavior in detail to those new actors so that they could affect so that they could effectively engage with entrepreneurs and startup communities in a way that was helpful rather than harmful. Super. And I love that you kind of touched on the fact that there are, you know, tons of different ecosystems and communities around the world. Um, and there's not just the one that we always tend to reference in Silicon Valley. And I think I even read uh, somewhere, I think it's it's uh, maybe on the cover of your book or on the back cover of your book, Silicon Valley couldn't recreate itself, uh, even if it tried. So um, uh, th- I think that's a very, very interesting point. Now, I want to come back to the fact that both of you have kind of talked about this evolution between 2012 and now. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. What what are the big major changes that have actually taken place? Well, if you if you go back to 2012, even then, uh, many people still said, if you want to start a company, you need to move to Silicon Valley. Like that was a thing that people said, and even though in 2012 there was plenty of entrepreneurial activity happening in places uh, around the world outside Silicon Valley. It still was part of the uh, conventional wisdom and language. Um, in 2020, that's gone. I, I don't ever hear that anymore. And uh, the democratization of entrepreneurship and innovation has been profound globally. Uh, the notion that uh, place matters continues to be important, but it means something different than it did eight years ago. Uh, another powerful part of uh, this evolution is something that, and I credit this to Ian that we really captured in the book, was the idea of capital. So in 2012, when people talked about capital, they almost always were talking about money. And so one of the phrases you heard and one of the limit, limiters in startup communities and the development of startup communities was um, the phrase, there's no capital here, or there's not enough capital here, or we need more capital here. And while the statement has you know, validity, I'm not going to say it's a, it's a false statement, um, in that first book, uh, I was very assertive about saying, like, that's not the problem. That, that's not the inhibitor. Uh, and there are a bunch of stuff around how to think about capital in a startup community, especially one that was developing and emerging. In the startup community way, in the new book, uh, we came up with a framework that we called the seven capitals, where financial capital is just one of those seven. And while your community may have a lack of some of those capitals, it has abundance of others. And the key is to really think about the capitals that you have abundance of or the capital you have abundance of and amplify that to use it to reinforce the creation of more of the other type of capital. And you know, specifically with regard to financial capital, we also then introduce ideas like entrepreneurial recycling, which is foundational in the context of the growth and development of a startup community. As you have companies exit and you have wealth generated by entrepreneurs and by senior execs and by early employees of those companies, uh, a key thing that happens, you see it over and over and over again all around the world, is that those entrepreneurs and early employees uh, make angel investments and start investing in new companies or go start new companies. And that entrepreneurial recycling, both of money and talent uh, and experience, is a very powerful accelerant 
in the context of the growth and development of startup communities. Could give you another 15 things like that, but those are some of the things that we uh, expand on that have changed quite a bit now that we have really a decade's worth of experience, you know, eight years since the book came out, but a decade's worth of experience since I started thinking about this stuff. Yeah, I uh, think uh, I can I can really definitely see exactly what you're talking about in terms of these, these different elements that have evolved over the last uh, eight, 10 years. And I think we've definitely felt it in France even. Uh, you know, our, our ecosystem has changed a lot. Uh, I think this entrepreneur recycling that you mentioned, definitely starting to see that just recently. Um, and I was not even aware that there are seven types of capital. So I think definitely going to have to dig into that a little bit more. Now, I want to come to another topic that I think uh, is addressed in the, in the book. is kind of the comparison between startup community and entrepreneurial ecosystem. How are you distinguishing between the two? What is, why do we have to distinguish between the two? Um, sure, I'll take a stab at that. Um, so as we were thinking about this and kind of to you know, explain a little bit about the origin story of our evolution in writing this book, that you had these two different, let's say, overgeneralizing a bit, but we have these two types of actors, which from the first, Brad's first book were called Leaders and Feeders. Um, we've added a third category called instigators, but I'll just oversimplify and say people who are either entrepreneurs or working with entrepreneurs as a part of their uh, full-time job, you know, on a daily basis, who understand the nature of entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial community building, and then everyone else. Um, and so we sort of, uh, you know, one of the things that we were observing is that it's not just these different frameworks, it's different incentive structures. So um, if let's say I'm working for a government, right? I'm going to have, and, and, and let's say that I'm actually engaging with entrepreneurs and I'm, you know, it's part of my mandate to support innovation or economic development in my city uh, or my region. Um, I have a much broader, I'm generally going to have a much broader constituency and different set of incentives than uh, putting everything I have into making sure that entrepreneurs succeed. And so we wanted to explain these as startup communities and, and entrepreneurial ecosystems as distinct but mutually reinforcing uh, phenomena. We talk about startup communities basically as the beating heart of a startup community. Um, it's, it's about more than the familiarity and the incentive structure that I just described. It's also about an, a common identity, sense of purpose, kinship, um, those sorts of things, the kind of the more uh, familiar definition of community rather than just the ecological one to stick with that um, ecosystem metaphor from ecology. And so what we wanted to say that as you sort of move further out from working with entrepreneurs on a daily basis, the method of engagement is going to be different. So often um, entrepreneurial ecosystem um, initiatives, they, they may use bottom-up language, but they tend to function in more of a top-down way. We uh, use a con we introduce a concept uh, in this chapter, which we call uh, community ecosystem fit, which for entrepreneurs, this will be familiar in terms of product market fit. Uh, you know you have it when people want your product, more or less. Um, this spun out of a bunch of different conversations, but one of them was, you know, having done some work in communities that are far less developed, um, have far less developed startup communities than in, in Paris, for example. Um, one of the complaints by, you know, the investor class or corporate innovation teams was, look, the, the startups here just suck. Like, you know, you want to tell us that we need to engage, we need to give first, we need to do all this stuff. Okay, fine, we hear you. I get all of that, but 
there are no opportunities. This is a waste of my time. And I guess while I sort of I sort of understand that, um, you know, my immediate response is, well, what are you doing to to improve that situation? Um, but a bigger issue here is, you know, the ecosystem doesn't become as activated until there's interesting companies spinning out of the community. And so our, our message is that by helping each other, when, when entrepreneurs and those supporting them on a consistent basis can help improve the odds that entrepreneurs will succeed, which again is ultimately the goal here, um, as successes spin out of the community, there will become more interest from the ecosystem and there becomes a mutually, you know, there's a reinforcing feedback mechanism that occurs. And that's one of the things we talk about with complex systems, the nonlinear progressions. And so we use that framework to sort of explain these two uh, distinct but related systems. Great. And I guess kind of a a follow on question, just because you've you've kind of hinted at it, but I'm assuming you guys dug into a lot of different ecosystems. Um, What's like the most surprising thing that you guys discovered in actually looking at everything around the world and these different kind of environments and what works and what doesn't, what was, what's the most shocking thing that you guys came across? Brad. Shocking is an interesting, uh, interesting word. For me, I'll I'll do a positive and a negative. Uh, The positive is how much coherence and understanding there is from entrepreneurs about some of the fundamental principles uh, and how they work going back to the original book. So I had a construct in the in the first book called the Boulder Thesis, and it had four principles. They were very simple. The first was entrepreneurs need to be the leaders of the startup community. You have to take a very long-term view, at least 20 years you have to be inclusive of anyone who wants to engage in the startup community. And and the fourth is you have to have activities and events that engage the startup community in entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial activities. 2012, those were not obvious. Today, they're fairly obvious. And the the positive is how broadly understood and articulated that is uh, throughout the world by entrepreneurs, both in theory and in practice. The negative, which is linked to that uh, in the shocking category, is in 2020, the number of non-entrepreneurs who are, you know, part of the entrepreneurial ecosystem and in many cases participate meaningfully or want to participate meaningfully in the startup community, who even though uh, they know those things, really struggle to effectively follow those principles. And it really links to one of the challenges that many of the the feeder organizations, uh, which we define very clearly in, in both books now as uh, the organizations that are involved in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And the people, there are people in those feeder organizations who play leadership roles in the startup community. We call those, as, as Ian mentioned, instigators. However, uh, the instigators generally understand these principles. And, and, and play leadership roles because they embrace them, but the organizations still really struggle. And the organizations struggle because they're hierarchical organizations. They're used to top-down control. They want predictability. They want measurement of things that are easy to measure but don't necessarily matter at all. Um, they believe they are more important than the entrepreneurs 
even if they still present themselves as uh, you know equal to, and they lose sight of the fact, and this is why the ecosystem, entrepreneurial ecosystem is distinct from the startup community, they lose sight of the fact that the fundamental goal is ultimately to help entrepreneurs succeed. And it, it continues to be very apparent that that gap exists, which is one of the motivations, I think, for the, the work we put into this book ultimately is to try to go deeper on that stuff versus the sort of high level, um, you know, here's a handful of principles, apply them kind of approach. Interesting. Ian, I'm, I'm wondering if you kind of feel the same way. And also I wanted to, uh, to kind of tag on to that. Um, it sounds a little bit like a lot of the, the ecosystems that thrive generally kind of have the same features and characteristics. Is it, is it essentially a blueprint? Can you take a blueprint? Um, or does it really have to be very kind of local and respond? I mean, is every ecosystem just very, very different in terms of its DNA and we just tend to touch the surface with what we see? I'll let, I'll let Ian answer, but I love the question because uh, I, would, I would start by very aggressively saying uh, there is no blueprint. Uh, and so that's not the, the dynamic. It's the uh, higher, higher level concepts then applied in numerous different ways, very unpredictably. But I'm going to use that as a handoff to Ian to go deeper on complex. Ian, what can you do with that? (laughs) Yeah. um, So, you know, you said it yourself, Roxanne, in the beginning uh, from the back of our book, which is Silicon Valley couldn't recreate itself. Um, I mean, we're still debating over what is, um, you know, an objective definition of success and what made Silicon Valley great. Uh, There were a bunch of things that made Silicon Valley great. Um, Some of those are still in existence. Some have decayed, some have evolved. Um, But, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, as a phenomena is now, you know, we were saying 100 years. Uh, Brad and I have had this conversation. There's actually a book, 100 Years of Evolution or something like that. And I, it's just this week I realized that book was published in 1996. So now we're talking about 125 years. So when people are looking to the model of Silicon Valley today, it's, you know, to the extent that it's useful, there are some certain there are certain principles that are useful. They're looking at the wrong time period, um, based on where many of their ecosystems are today. Uh, we dedicate an entire chapter to this called the absence of a blueprint. So just to reemphasize <laughs> Brad's point, you know, we're strongly against this notion of that there's a formula to follow. Um, it goes against everything we know about um, complex systems. But what I'll say is uh, for me, and I know that Brad uh, agrees um, to a degree, if not wholly, that one of the most convincing frameworks we've read on this is from a scholar uh, at UC Berkeley named Annalise Saxanian. Um, she wrote a book in the mid '90s comparing, um, you know, the Route 128 corridor around Boston uh, around the World War II and post-war period with Silicon Valley, and in many ways, Boston was what better positioned um, to be the technology hub of the United States. Um, but actually, Silicon Valley is the one that won out. And you know, again, we can talk about all these different factors. Uh, you know, Stanford, uh, Fred Terman, all these other. Uh, a, a range of different issues, but the overarching one is that uh, Silicon Valley had an organizational form that led um, to collaborative competition, openness, um, you know, sort of more of a commitment to the cause 
horizontal, uh, the commitment to the cause over any one institution, any one person or firm, um, a horizontal organizational form instead of a, a hierarchy. And so we think that those principles not only still apply, but are doubly so today, um, given that we've gone even further down, uh, you know, uh, we've, we've gone further down this uh, conversion from a hierarchical-based structure of an economy to a network-based one. Super. And Ian, I'm going to tag on to that with just a bit more of a personal question, because I think you actually were based in Europe until recently. Um, when you compare kind of the European uh, communities that you saw here with the ones that you see in the U.S. now, what? how do you compare them? What do you feel? Are the, Do you feel anything is lacking? Do you feel there's still stuff to be done? Uh, have things flipped? What's your take on that? Well, let me state uh, one empirical reality and one uh, one feel um, that I had from my experience. So, uh, you know, just to add some facts to your listeners. So in California, but I spent five years in, in London, um, will always consider it uh, an emotional home for me, if not a physical one, um, and plan to spend time there uh, regularly. In 2018, I worked with um, an urban economist named uh, Richard Florida, who actually is a mutual friend of Brad and mine and is the person who introduced us to begin with back in 2014. And um, Richard and I were talking about, you know, doing some kind of work around the geographic spread of, of innovation-driven entrepreneurship. Um, famous uh, investor in the United States, Steve Case, he was one of the founders of AOL and ran the company. He's in, based in Washington, D.C., and has, has been a proponent of the rise of startup communities throughout the United States through his initiative called The Rise of the Rest. And Richard said a simple thing to me. Um, you know, he said, I think the rest is rising, but I think it's rising even more outside of the United States. And so we set out to test it. Um, we did a study looking at 300 different cities around the world and the rise of, um, you know, tech entrepreneurship, which we proxy through venture capital uh, uh, data, which I want to really stress that proxy point. Um, in our book, we have a whole chapter on the measurement trap. Uh, we talk about the limitations of effective measurement in this space. But uh, caveats aside, Richard and I studied this, and what we found was that, um, in fact, as much as the United States was growing for venture-backed entrepreneurship, reaching historic highs, uh, the rest of the world was rising even faster. And in some of those places in Europe, particularly London, obviously Paris, uh, Berlin, and a few others. So this is an empirical reality. One of the questions I have on that is, how sustainable is this? Going back to that seven capitals framework, I feel like we've gone, you know, well, seems to be uh, crashing um, by the moment, but we, we just went through a very, a very long uh, bull market. Um, interest rates have been at historic lows, which has pumped um, capital into, uh, into entrepreneurial finance. And so we'll see if the, the winds at our back are uh, when those turn into headwinds, whether this progress is actually sustained. Uh, so far, it seems okay, but but we'll see if the underlying conditions, the other capitals, um, are actually there to support a period when when financial capital may be in uh, at least in partial decline. So, uh, high level takeaway there: it's empirical. It's an empirical reality. It's happening. My feel is that you know, spending a lot of time in London, and of course, you know, my network um, in London is you know, I had the opportunity to work with a, a bunch of amazingly talented people. So that's my sample set. But what I've seen is um, 
at, at least in London, is an amazing sense of collaboration in that community. There are a number of stakeholders. Um, I want to call one out, a man named John Spindler, who is one of these, we call them keystones, um, super connectors, super nodes in the book. Um, Brad uh, is well known for playing this role in Boulder, where they are just a person who everyone knows and gets things done. Um, they're the person when you show up, uh, you know, much like if I wanted to show up to, to Paris and, and have a productive day meeting um, influential people in the startup community and meeting with um, great companies, how easily could I find those people? Um, I think that's pretty easy to do in London, and John would be one of those people. And there are a bunch of folks like that. Um, I'm still active in that community. I'm mentoring and, and about to invest in a company there. Um, and so the entrepreneurs are fantastic. Um, and um, I think the only thing that had been holding it back for so long um, was a potential attachment to um, some of the best and the brightest going into these legacy institutions. But in the last economic crisis, um, especially in London, especially in finance, those opportunities were shut off. And now I see um, a lot of the young, ambitious, um, intelligent people going uh, and to start their own companies rather than working for these older legacy institutions. Super. And I think it's fascinating that you asked the question of the sustainability um, of the ecosystem as well, because I think that's a question that's often overlooked, uh, especially as some of these ecosystems start to grow and there's a bit of hype around it. Um, I think a lot of the time we, we overlook that, but hopefully we'll be successful. So given that your upcoming investment will be based there. So fingers crossed. Um, I want to wrap up with one final question uh, for Brad, especially. Um, but Ian would love to hear your thoughts on this as well. What do you feel is the most important factor in creating a community that thrives? Uh, I'll come back to where I started. Uh, I think you have to have a critical mass of entrepreneurs who are committed for a very long period of time. And in what the is, absence, what in is the that absence long of that, of <laughs> uh, just in the absence of that, you won't have a durable, successful startup community. If you have that, and critical mass is not a big number, half a dozen. Um, and, you know, lots of stuff flows from that. Those half a dozen uh, aren't the gatekeepers. They're not the boss. They're not the CEO. They're not the ones in charge. Um, they're just committed long term uh, to engaging with and building and developing and evolving the startup community. And do you pick this one? Because I, there's a ton of important factors if we're, if we're honest about it. Do you pick this one because you feel this is the hardest one to achieve? Maybe people aren't particularly committed. Maybe the critical mass is actually difficult to get to. Uh, no, I, I think it's because it's the essential na nature of a bottom up network phenomena. Um, no one is appointed the leader. No one is in control of what happens. And so you have to have some, you know, the equivalent of kinetic energy going on. And that kinetic energy needs to come from somewhere, someone, some ones. And uh, oftentimes there is an absence of that, although there is a lot of activity especially from the top down where the university says, well, you know, entrepreneurship's a big deal. So let's do some entrepreneurial programs and let's get some entrepreneurship stuff going. And, you know, again, fine, but not sufficient. So I, I feel like it's the critical ingredient that needs to be there over a very long period of time. It's not sufficient to start with it and then have it drift away. Super. Ian, do you have a similar feeling, different feeling? 
Uh, I have a similar feeling. So just to kind of build on that, I would say that, you know, at the end of the day, if the entrepreneurs uh, don't find, you know, if the entrepreneurs aren't putting energy into the community, then, um, then there, there is no community, right? So I've seen um, in a number of different countries, there are governments that are doing things, well, some that are doing things actually pretty well. I would say, who are embracing these principles of bottom-up. But they're ultimately, um, I would say, they're catalyzing for too long of a period. So some of these cities that I've gone into and seen that it's it's an entirely government-run um, phenomenon uh, in building startup communities. So at some point, if the entrepreneurs are not engaging, uh, it must not be useful or they may not care. There's a... Um, there's a phrase that we talk about in the book called topophilia, which comes from, uh, you know, Brad's, uh, the governor of Colorado, who's, I believe, a friend of Brad's, former governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper, which just means love of place. So at some point, you know, if the entrepreneurs aren't looking after each other and have this intense commitment to building a lasting community and the place they love and want to spend the rest of their lives, then really, I'm not sure what we're doing this for. It's ultimately for them. And and what would you say are some of the examples, uh, especially of that kind of top-down approach that you mentioned? Does any specific ecosystem or community come to mind? Yeah, I'll, I'll just throw, well, I'm not going to name names, but I'll <laughs> say that, um, you know, a, a classic thing that I've seen is, you know, we go around and look at uh, the amount of entrepreneur, what we'll call broadly entrepreneurial support organizations. So let's just say... That, that has a range from co-working, you know, so, so real estate all the way to accelerators, right? Um, something where essentially the mission of the organization is to help entrepreneurs and their startups. Um, what I've found is that uh, there are, in many places, there are too many in number. And the staffs of these organizations tend to be people either in administrative or marketing functions, not actually... There, there are often very few people with uh, experience building companies or working at startups that are engaged. And so what ends up happening is you have this huge ratio of, on, of the entrepreneurial support industry to actual entrepreneurs. Uh, and it's all supported by the state. The problem, there's not, a, there's not an inherent problem with government supporting these activities. It's when there's too much of it and you don't allow uh, the private actors to emerge with ultimately what's most useful. Um, so my message there is government, great at catalyzing, but follow, uh, follow the signals and see if it's actually useful. If these, if these organizations aren't producing, um, you know, positive out- companies with positive outcomes, then maybe it's time to wind it down. And then I would say, you know, look for the things that already exist in the community that are working. Um, often these are grassroots initiatives with, you know, little or no money, um, often occurring at, cafes or bars or whatever, um, but see how you can empower those people um, because they're already doing the work. And so that's that's what I mean by that. Very diplomatic, not to name names, but I can definitely see what you're talking about. Um, I feel like I could ask a million more questions. This has been fascinating and incredibly insightful. And I think if our listeners are anything like me, they will probably run to buy the book or <laughs> download it somewhere. Um, so I want to thank you both for taking part in this today. Thank you, Brad and Ian. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us. If you like this episode, make sure to give us many, many stars. And if you have any feedback or if you want to suggest a topic or a speaker, 
Uh, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter or by email at press at stationf.co. And finally, make sure to follow us and not miss out on our next podcast episodes. We're available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and Google Podcasts. All right, see you soon.